All right, gang, welcome back to the Hardwick Life Podcast. Super excited to have our guest join us today. As you know, I always like to put out really solid information, not things that uh, come from hearsay or anecdote, but actual research, actual science, actual studies. This guy is one of the best. Alan Aragon is his name. He's a nutrition researcher and educator. He's got over 25 years of success in the field. He is known as one of the most influential figures in the fitness industry's movement towards evidence-based information. His notable clients include Stone Cold Steve Austin, Derek Fisher, Pete Sampras. Alan writes a monthly research review. It's the Alan Aragon Research Review, A-A-R-R, which I subscribe to. You can check that out at alanaragon.com, A-R-A-G-O-N.com, A-L-A-N-A-R-A-G-O-N.com. And he provides cutting-edge, theoretical, and practical information. His work has been published in popular magazines as well as the peer-reviewed scientific literature. Guys, that's super important. I can't tell you how important that is. He co-authored Nutrient Timing Revisited, which is the most viewed article in the history of the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, the JISSN, and by the way, the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition, is the gold standard for sports nutrition, evidence-based research. Uh, I'm working towards getting certified in that right now. That's how high I think of it, but I think I got to get a master's degree before I can do that. So we got work to do, but we're working towards that. Uh, Alan is also the lead author of the ISSN position stand on diets and body composition, and he maintains a private practice designing programs for recreational and professional athletes. And of course, regular Joes like us just striving to be our best. Please do follow Alan on social media at the Alan Aragon, and you can subscribe to his research reviews again at alanaragon.com. It's $10 a month, and I think for you evidence-based folks out there looking uh, to not have to scour through crazy amounts and thousands of articles, Alan boils it down very simply. Oh, yeah, and he also has a very, very good book, uh, one that I highly recommend to all of you looking to find a sustainable way to have the body that you've dreamed of, and it is called Flexible Dieting, and we're going to talk about that book today. It is a phenomenal book, very easy to follow, but it also hits on a lot of points that I think a lot of diets miss out on, which is not only the physiological processes that happen in the body, which are scientific and evidence-based, but also the psychological components of dieting or having a well-balanced lifestyle. And Alan does a tremendous job with all of this and preaching it. So looking forward to catching up with Alan and learning a lot from him on this episode. Thank you for joining us. Well, most of the successful, normal, insane people that I know, honestly, they, they're early to bed, early to rise. So I don't know. But it's but it's not for everybody, right? And I really do find that people just naturally skew one way or another. I've been getting up early. I, even in high school, I was up at 4 a.m. going to the gym, training, as a, which probably isn't optimal for a high school athlete to do that. But I just 
was up and I went to bed early and I still go to bed really early and I still wake up really early, but there are folks that tense, man. I, I admire you guys. man. <laughs> I admire you for being able to stay up late. My college roommate was up till two or three every morning. And I thought, man, what is going on at that hour? <laughs> yeah. All I got to say, Nick, is I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh yeah. I'm, I'm sure you do, Alan. So give me a little, uh, five minute, Bio, how'd you get into this field? Why did nutrition become such an important factor in your life? Sure. I got into the field through a number of different vectors. <laughs> um, a real early one was my dad giving me a set of weights at like 12 or 13 or so. Oh, wow. Those weeder plastic weights that had who knows what like cement in them or something <laughs> and so um just showed me the basic uh exercises and then just kind of got got hooked on that aspect but there was a simultaneous thing going on where you know you're you're a young adolescent and you see magazine covers with bodybuilders on it and you go oh my gosh that's so awesome and then you're into superhero heroes and then you kind of make this connection between the bodybuilders and the superheroes and what, what the possibilities are. And so it, it just all kind of came together. That's what got me into the whole physique culture thing. And then um, the interest in health kind of creeps its way in as you get older. And uh, in a nutshell, man, I, I started off as an art major and then ended up as a nutrition major. Wow. Um, started off as a personal trainer, ended up as a researcher and was a nutritional counselor somewhere in between. And then what happened was 30 years elapsed and here we are today. <laughs> <laughs> so at, you started as a personal trainer. Did it just keep happening that you're, you just keep looking for the right answer and more solutions for your clients and finding ways to arm them and help them through their processes. Yeah. I, my, my tenure with personal training was about 10 years and, um, you know, full-time in the gym, in homes, the, the whole thing. And, and <clears throat> somewhere along the way, and this kind of happened during my, uh, my graduate degree, I, I found out that I was better at counseling and teaching and writing and educating uh, than I was at training, or maybe I liked it more. I'm not sure. Right. But um, which probably one one led to the other. Yeah, yeah that that that's true. I mean, you you spend ten years doing something, and then you kind of want to, you know, maybe evolve into into something slightly different. Some people don't. Well. That's what happened in my case. And then after 10 years of nutritional counseling, um, once again, the, the evolutionary shift in my career was teaching and researching. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what happened. In, in 2011, I messaged um, a gentleman named Brad Schoenfeld, who some of your audience might, might be. Oh, yeah, we've had Brad on. Oh, you've had? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah, Brad's great. I, I DM'd him, or back in the days we called it PM, private message. I, I PM'd him 
on bodybuilding.com in, in, in the bodybuilding.com forums. And I asked him if it's cool if I critiqued one of his papers for my monthly research review, which I had started three years earlier in, in 2008. And he said, yeah, go for it, man. This is what keeps science honest. You know, this is, this is real peer review. Go ahead. Here's the paper. And so he sent me the paper. I critiqued it in my research review and um, we've had a really great friendship and relationship ever since then. And whenever there's a, a research project that has to do with nutrition, he pulls me on board and, and um, I have the, the privilege of, of, of working in, in that capacity of, the, of academia. So I'm really raised in the trenches. I'm in, I'm in the trenches, but <clears throat> just kind of getting to know certain researchers um, has enabled me to be invited on a bunch of research projects. And this is an ongoing thing too. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Yeah. You got the Alan Aragon research review. I'm a subscriber. I've urged all of my listeners and followers to subscribe to it. Yeah. It's, you know, it's people like you, people like Brad, Andy Galpin, Brett Contreras, uh, Spencer Nadalski, right. That are evidence-based nutrition it must be there must be some component of it because for me like even the capacity and the knowledge that I have right now and always digging for more you know I'll show up to to practice out of the football fields I coach high school football I coach youth football and like I'll show up and say parents you have to give your kids some carbohydrates before they come out here they're running out of energy and I can see it in them and they look at me like oh my gosh it's it's maddening like you can't be uh, a proponent of giving them a sports drink and I'm like oh my goodness we are in such a funny world right now it must be in your head and in some of the other doctors and researchers heads like this must be just a really confounding time that we live in with nutrition and myths and people chasing funny pigtails or storylines or whatever you want to call them and it seems to me that there's a pretty tight consensus amongst the people who really do the research and look at all the studies of what's real and what's not real yet it seems as if the masses are still so confused by all this why why how are how and why it's maddening <laughs> that is such a great observation and and um oh and by the way were you coaching high school high school football yes high school football uh, man, that's that's admirable you're, you're like not only are you are you husband material but your dad material too so that's that's really amazing nick it's the greatest right I, I i'm telling you i get more out of it than these kids do it is the greatest three hours four hours of my life every day both my kids are in high school and it's yeah it's a it's a it's a wild ride man <laughs> yeah the, <laughs> i tell you high school high school I, this is my first year doing it it is uh it's eye-opening say the least, but it is so fun just being with them, being on their team and getting to help them any way I can. I love learn it. Learn a whole different language, right? Yes. You learn, you learn a literal different language. That's right. And you learn kind of this, this really interesting, um, it brings you back. 
to to high school, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I remember this. I remember this energy. I remember this. You know what I mean? It's, That's right. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. It's but they do. They speak a different language than we do. So I'll say I'll say some I'll say some things <laughs> I'll say some things and they'll stop me and be like, Coach, you can't you can't say that. I'm like, I don't even know what I said. There's the <laughs> and it's not that they're they don't get offended easily or anything like that. It's just like I guess it's so outdated. You know, things I say are so outdated or and I'm I'm 41. It's not like you know not dark age not dark ages stuff. But man, it is it is hilarious. Anyway, that is funny. And um, back to your question, and I had to veer off into that because it's, it's just really funny. Um, back to your question about the masses being massively confused. Uh, the, okay, so people wonder like, what, what, what is, what's driving the obesity pandemic, if you will? What's driving the obesity epidemic, and and why? What what's going on here? Um, and, and I had an interesting conversation with my audience about is obesity a choice or is it not a choice? And, and that's, that's this huge, this opens this huge can of worms, which has several things driving the, the, the volatility and contentiousness of that topic, which are pretty interesting to me. I've been swimming around in it the last few days as my audience has been just, you know, bickering over it. Um, <clears throat> but one of the, I think that there are, are many factors driving the worldwide obesity problem, but I think that two highly underrated factors are rampant misinformation, number one, and number two, a lack of just basic education of just the foundational elements of, of how, how the body, how body composition is altered, how body weight is altered. So it's just these twin demons kind of viciously <laughs> just going in this circle of bad information constantly pumped out by quacks with huge platforms and then a lack of foundational information amongst the masses. And, you know, just those two things alone is a recipe for bad outcomes like obesity or the inability to maintain weight loss. Because, you know, anybody can jump on this, you know, special fad diet where you remove X, Y, and Z, or you have this long list of foods you can't eat and this short list of foods that you can eat. You get on that and then it works for a few weeks or even a few months, and then you can't sustain it and bam, you're right back on the, you know, on the train towards obesity. And that's really, that's really kind of um, something that doesn't get talked about enough are those, those two factors that, that drive obesity. Uh, obviously there are other things like <clears throat> what facilitates a lack of um, proper education, you know, is it socioeconomics um, and what, what's going on with the psychological basis for um, prevention of, of reaching body composition goals. Um, what, what are the things in the immediate environment and what are things in the architectural or the built or the institutional environment that may be driving obesity? All of those things play in, uh, but the concept of how much choice do we have in the matter? How much do we not? 
and, and does this vary with the individual? Those nuanced questions often get lost in this binary question of, is obesity a choice or is it not? Right. And my, my answer to that was, for some people, it's far more of a choice. And yes, it is a choice for some people. For some people, it's far less of a choice. And you can say that for some people, it isn't a choice. But to say that obesity is not a choice, what you're doing is you're removing all possibility of autonomy from individuals with obesity. You are literally pigeonholing them into this disempowered corner with zero agency over themselves and the environment. And that's just whack. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Sorry, you can't do anything about it. Yeah, right, right, right. Or on the other side of it, sorry, you've got total control and you're just making really poor choices. When Right, exactly. There's a whole confluence of events that are going on in somebody's life that have led to this. Yeah, so that's that's the, the thing that, that's eye-opening is it's not a universal yes-no answer. You have to look at the individual situation. There are people in certain socioeconomic circumstances who are born into a set of parents who are just shoveling hyper palatable foods at them since infancy and they have like zero education on the matter and they became obese was it their choice to become obese or was it their special circumstances or was it a combination um it's different with everybody yeah and there's just like in in sports there's genetics that factor into it right you've got a baseline of talent and some people's talents higher than others some people start with no talent you know, and they're born into an environment that continues with a hyper palatable food with reward centers that, you know, it's like, Hey, we don't have a whole lot, but when you, we drive through Taco Bell or when we drive through McDonald's, I see your eyes light up and that's good enough for me for the day, right? Like let's get through the day and let's not worry about two years from now. I want to see you smile right now. So there's a lot of things that factor into that. And then you think, well, can we take this talent or where we started and can we get it up to a hundred? Well, maybe not, but you know, maybe sixties reasonable. But if you start like my kids, they, they don't know they're born on third base. They're really lucky to be born in the house that they're born in with the environment that we have for their health. I mean, there's some things that they would probably like to change about their upbringing, but this is the life that they get, but they are already, far ahead of even where a lot of adults are at this point because of the environment that we live in. And that's, you know, what I always talked when I talk to people about obesity is have empathy because you have no clue what somebody's relationship with food is, what the relationship at home is, what they've been taught, what they know. You have no idea. We have no idea. And that's to me what, what I love so much about your book is not only do you address the physiological side of things, but there's also a huge side of it that almost everybody misses is this whole psychological component to maintaining a healthy body and having some acceptance and having some empathy and realizing that it's not necessarily all or nothing. Yep. That, that I, I think what, what you preach maybe the hardest thing to attain for everybody, which is balance. Mm-hmm. Like, we just, we aren't very good at moderation. We aren't very good at balance. So, you know, it's like, 
cut eliminate all these things and that'll work and stick to this three foods and yeah you'll have your body but over the long haul there's that's not it's not gonna work yeah yeah we're, we're generally humans are not wired that way you know we're not wired towards thinking in terms of shades of gray we just want to compartmentalize organize and simplify this like just really really simple way to to kind of perceive and grasp reality and and then a lot of times um things start getting lost important details start just getting that falling through the cracks and the baby gets thrown out with the bath water in a lot of cases when we take certain approaches to to changing the body and so yeah i completely agreed with you on that nick yeah it's it's black and white it's yes or no it's good or bad which i think is super dangerous in that world and i know i've learned from you is like when i'm dealing with my clients it's like oh i had a bad you know i made some bad choices like well you made some maybe less than optimal choices that may have you know on the continuum or the spectrum of food or choices of exercise okay maybe you you weren't optimal but we can still move on you know, we, we can live to fight another day and we can just learn from our mistakes. We can come up with solutions and be problem solvers and be curious about why perhaps we make the choices that we make. And that's what I always try to do with my clients is the, the psychology behind it. Like, what do you think led to that decision? And I think that's for me with flexible dieting is the psychology behind all of it is so powerful. Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and that approach you, that you, you, you described this non dichotomous, um, <laughs> black and you know, this, this non black and white approach, it is supported by the weight of the, the evidence in, in the literature too. So it's not just kind of this intuitive thing that we know to be true that you can't chase perfectionism all the time. Um, that it's actually supported by science. So, yeah, well, that's, that's a good thing. Alan, when people find out what you do for a living, what's, what's the most common first question that people ask you? And I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to get at is like, you know, what at the root of the general population's thoughts on nutrition and dieting, what's their, what's their first question that they're trying to get out of you? That's a good one. Um, it, Okay, so this would the, this answer is influenced by the circles that that I end up in socially, and so um, if it's not at a conference with a bunch of fitness people, it's going to be at like a birthday or um, at somewhere where there's a bunch of other middle aged parents. Yes. Um, and so what I get asked by the middle aged parents when they find out what I do is how do I lose weight? I've been struggling with this, these, you know, I've gained 20 pounds since high school and I've tried this diet and I've tried that diet. And I, like, what, what do I do in it? <laughs> what? <laughs> You're like, first thing, Sign sign into alanaragon.com and and we'll start there. You've got some catching up to do. It's really it's really pretty. I, I'm I get flattered when I'm asked these kind of questions because 
it's flattering for people to trust you as an expert, but the unique thing about fitness and, and nutrition, you know, because everybody eats and or exercises, they feel like it's totally cool to just you know, get like an on the spot consultation on it, you know, <laughs> talk, you know, give me your advice. And um, people don't understand that, you know, there's an assessment process and the best you can do is give them a bunch of sound bites that might help their situation, you know? Right. And what I always end up doing is I always end up spending some time debunking their, their bad thinking and their wrong beliefs they're like they you know when i talk to people they automatically okay they find out what i do i'm a nutrition guy okay they automatically want to let me know that they kind of know what they're doing they're on the same page they they want to impress me with their knowledge they're like okay so i, I cut out the rice all right <laughs> good that's good right the bread uh, right <laughs> i'm doing good right I cut out the sugar and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, slow down, slow down, Bo. <laughs> slow down. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, they, people generally want to know how to lose weight and, and, or get in shape and or get more toned and, or look more like the, the guy on the men's health cover. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. So people don't understand a few things about that. First of all, the dude on the cover of the magazine, was blessed straight out the gate. He was blessed straight out the womb. Before the womb, he was blessed. Um, favorable genetics for leanness, favorable genetics for muscle mass. And uh, usually these guys on the magazine covers, they don't have a bad before pick. If anything, they have a skinny pick when they were 14 and just skinny. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right these guys and so by the time they discovered weight training the minute they touched a weight bam their body just responded like crazy and they're just reading the you know the different magazines they're, they're bulking up and they're loading up they're trying to gain a pound of muscle a day <clears throat> they discover that oh, okay that's not the optimal way to do it the minute they get some kind of grounding on on decent nutrition and regular training they're looking like Greek gods. And, and then um, they end up on the magazine covers doing, <clears throat> I don't want to, you know, put any hard, hard uh, heuristics on this, but it's possible for people for magazine cover types to do, to, to look how they look with about half the effort as, as normal, regular folks do. Yes. Talent. Talent. Absolutely. Talent. Yep. And so when a, a, a regular guy, a mere mortal tells me that he wants to look like this guy on the cover of Men's Health, uh, they don't realize that this guy, not only does he have the genetics for it, but he lives and breathes that kind of lifestyle. And all of his priorities in his day are, are geared towards that goal. Yes. And so um, people have a tough time understanding that at, at, at minimum, these guys are training most of the days of the week and they're putting in usually at least an hour of vigorous work on most of the days of the week. And that's at the lower end. The guys who are really into it 
and that's kind of their job to be a cover guy, double that. So six to 12 hours a week. If you can carve that out, you want to look like the men's health cover guy. That's the that's the first part. Do you have, the, are you willing to, to put in the time to do it? And then the second part is you realize these guys are like perma dieting. <laughs> they're, if, if they're not like tiptoeing around a very lean bulk, then they're freaking hardcore turbo cutting here. So <laughs> it's like, um, there's a certain range of body fat percent that will give you you know, in, in quotes, the aesthetics as well as health. And it's usually not sharp six pack territory. Right. So sharp six pack territory in men, most men comes with the cost of, uh, well, subjectively feeling crappy, um, socially being very limited and physiologically being kind of rubbery and, and, and well, not, not very functional, uh, below the belt. Okay. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> as long as these, as long as these guys know what the, what the costs and the risks are, then you could kind of enter into that part of the conversation. And I find it really interesting how, what a huge gap there is between what people want to look like versus what they're able and willing to do to get there. Yes. So I 100% I, I did a post recently about this. Maybe I did a podcast with my wife about this is we didn't address the talent factor that you're talking about. You know, you come out of the womb, you're, you're conceived with, genetics that are superior that's why you're a model that's why you're on the cover and maybe your face isn't great but man that body is exactly what is required and then what are you willing to do an hour or two plus a day what are you willing to eat but then like you're talking what are you willing to sacrifice and the further you go up the elite level the more you have to be willing to sacrifice not only out of your lifestyle, out of your socialization, but also like you're talking your health, you're also sacrificing your health to have those abs that could, you know, that, that are worthy of a cover. Yep. It's Absolutely dude. Where, what, what percentages, what body fat percentages can we mesh health and aesthetics? Yes. Yes. Okay. So the, Statistical norms for healthy body fat percent in men. There's a few publications on this, but they all converge approximately on 10 to 20% body fat for men. So anytime you edge towards 10 and below, you are competitively athletic or just, you know, your, your paycheck kind of may depend on right. your leanness. Um, anytime you're edging up and past 20% as a male, then you're raising the risk for chronic diseases and uh, a bunch of negative stuff. So the sweet spot within that 10 to 20% where aesthetics and health can intersect um, is roughly for most guys who would be, you know, for most guys' standards 
it would be about 10 to 15 percent gotcha and for females okay women are, are a whole different whole different animal yes <laughs> in in so many ways <laughs> yeah you, you know you can't live with them and you can't live without them <laughs> i've always wanted to say that yeah and every time i get the opportunity to the rare time it's just so fun um so women the statistical norms for normal healthy body fat percent is 20 to 30 okay so towards 20 and below you start seeing negative things like disruption of the menstrual cycle low energy availability of related pathologies um and then of course towards 30 and and, and above 30 percent we start seeing risk for chronic diseases the metabolic uh, related chronic diseases like di diabetes and um, uh, diabetes as it were so um those are the pretty memorable heuristics with with men and women that uh, the 10 to 20 for men and 20 to 30 for women so women's sweet spot um where aesthetics and health can can converge ah uh, a, I don't want to go there for fear of getting canceled. And B, <laughs> right. <laughs> and B, it is more complicated than than with men. It, it yes. really is. I mean, because there's a lot yes. of women in the high twenties and even in the low thirties who are uh, very healthy and and um, arguably aesthetic as well. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, yeah. I'm and then on on the low end for females, where would that be? Yeah. Cause I don't think we can get canceled for saying somebody's too lean. Sure. Sure. Um, with, with 20% being the statistical cutoff for, um, healthy leanness in athletic populations, you do see high teens, right? Occasional mid teen occasionally, but, um, essential, body fat levels for women to just merely survive is in the 12 to 14 range. So anywhere below that, you, you, you'll just die. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, high teens, I, I see that being kind of a, a low cutoff for healthy um, and functional and a good metric for that would be to, to you know, if, if you've got a regular menstrual cycle, once that starts getting disrupted, you know, that's a very concrete marker that you need to start putting body weight and body fat on. Gotcha. I asked you, what do people, people at social gatherings ask you when they find out what you do? What is your circle of friends? What are, what are you guys, what questions are you raising right now in the nutrition world? Yeah. Um, one of them is how to maintain the, the vigor, the strength, and the body composition of um, young adulthood. How, how do we maintain that in, in, in older or even elderly <laughs> adulthood? So as you can probably relate, you're, you're, did you say you're 40? 41. I keep, I keep forgetting that I put a year on since I turned 40, 41. So anticlimactic that I just, I just 
make me 40 make me 45 or 50 already 41's just this is a waste you you need you need reasons to treat yourself to that, <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah what the the conversation about preserving youth and vigor and strength through um older adulthood is really interesting because you're, you're 41 and just by i i almost want to assume that you are in as good of shape strength wise and or body composition wise that you've ever been in i i almost want to assume that you can look back to your 20s and go damn i can outlift my 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 20 year old self yes i can outlift it dude i can who knows maybe maybe my my physique is just as good in in many ways as my 20 year old self so I think that's a really cool thing for just both psychologically and physiologically and just moving forward into life as, as you cross over into 50 and then 60 and then 70. Uh, um, it's a really worthy and, and really kind of a, a magical thing to be able to preserve the fountain of youth, whether it's strength, whether it's cognitive ability, uh, whether it's great body composition or whether it's all, all of those things. Um, uh, my, my colleagues and I, we, we've been having that conversation too. And um, actually uh, I just published a paper with, with Brad on the topic of age related anabolic resistance or, you know, just dealing with things like sarcopenia. Um, Muscle loss. Yep. And that sort of thing. I, I, I think that people underestimate that the onset of age-related muscle loss can, can happen as soon as you start making that sedentary shift from physically active to sedentary. And for a lot of the population in the developed world, this happens in their 30s. Just simply <laughs> that sedentary shift where people get corporatized. Yeah. That's right. A lot more growing butt roots into the, the desk, <laughs> the, the chair. So um, I, I think that's an interesting topic. And then another topic is just different ways of, of mitigating overweight and obesity. That's always going to be something of interest because it's always something that happens to working adults. And whether you, you have kids or not, um, the more you try to support yourself and or your family and, and try to make ends meet, the less focus and time people spend on, on their health and their body composition. Yeah. And so the different ways of controlling overeating in addition to, a, to training are really interesting. Whether you diet in a daily caloric restriction pattern or whether you choose to do something nonlinear like fasting a couple days a week or constraining your feeding window from like, you know, the, the, the conventional 12 hours down to like six to eight hours. Um, those are all interesting approaches that, that me and my research colleagues talk about the pros and cons of and, and what the evidence base is for, for each one. And so, so yeah. It's, it's like solving obesity is almost like solving the homeless crisis. You know, it's, it's, going to be very very challenging um you mentioned it just a moment ago there's been a lot of talk about intermittent fasting time restricted 
eating windows, all those things. And I know you're not a huge fan. Is is there an ideal number of feedings, I guess, especially for protein consumption per day, you know, for people that aren't maybe IF or time-restricted feeding? And the, the whole funny thing about that one for me is, you know, it's like, well, 12 to 8 was the ideal window, and now it's more 8 to 2, and it's like, well... <laughs> I don't, you know, it's like, well, we got, we got off of the, we got off of the whole time restricted thing. And then, no, we just shifted it. Now somebody's going to grab that and run with that ball for a little bit. It's like, well, you can take it. It'll probably, you know, that, that morning window will probably last now for another eight months. And then the next thing will come and they'll shift it again. It's like, oh my goodness, when are we going to just learn? (laughs) When are we going to figure it out? But with that window, they keep changing it. Yeah, the window keeps moving on the house here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that just illustrates how generally silly it is to place so much weight on something like, like the placement of the feeding window and the number of hours of the feeding window. And it, it really, when, when somebody makes a hard and definitive claim that everybody needs to eat from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. in order to maximize their health. That couldn't be more wrong. That could not be more wrong. And it it gets even more wrong as, as you look at populations that need to take advantage of every opportunity they've got to, for example, get in enough protein for the day. Like the, like, Older adults, for example, if you tell older adults that they need to stop eating by 4 or 5 p.m. because you're following this cute little early time restricted feeding trend that guys who don't even lift are propagating. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Then you're missing out on a nighttime protein-rich snack that would not only um, bridge kind of the gap maybe calorie-wise, that people may be missing out on as they get older and are fighting for fighting frailty, but it's an opportunity to elicit muscle protein synthesis to add to the overall muscle preservation effect uh, of the diet. And so, you know, people that there, there are a bunch of um, interesting findings showing positive effects of, of front loading your calories in the day especially for people who don't train and who are trying to avoid um, problems with glycemic control. There, there seems to be a consistency of data showing that when you front load your calories, then your, your body functions better from the standpoint of controlling blood glucose. Okay. Okay, great. Fine. What about if you do train? (laughs) It changes the whole game. Right. And what if, what if you have goals of optimizing your health instead of just kind of saving it from the treachery of, of doing nothing? You know, what, what if you, what if we took this early time restricted feeding model and added a protein snack, like way past four or 5 PM? What if we added that protein snack at like nine or 10? Hey, we'd be, <laughs> we'd be covering the best of both worlds possibly. Right. Right. And so, okay. So, so back to your original question about protein distribution through the day, it can be kind of summed up like this. If you have a goal, your main goal 
is gaining muscle, then to maximize that goal, you would be consuming protein throughout the kind of the entire course of the day. I'm not talking about eating a, eating a hit of protein every hour or two, but a minimum of three, three to four ish protein rich meals through the course of the day, hitting a total protein intake of roughly 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of target body weight. So that would be the recipe for that. Um, in, in a recent paper I did, we boiled down the recommendation to 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. That would be the protein dose of each meal. And that would be taken over the course of four meals. And that would lead you to a total of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body weight, which translates to 0.7 to 1.0 grams per pound of body weight. And so that is kind of the recipe for maximizing muscle growth and even in some cases, muscle retention. Okay, so, so that's muscle growth. Now we shift over to the other goal, which would be muscle retention while dieting. Uh, there's a, a ton of data showing that the game really sort of changes and the programming does change for the main goal of, of fat loss versus the main goal of muscle gain. If your main goal is fat loss and you have maybe a secondary goal of not losing all your muscle, <laughs> um, then distribution of protein throughout the day, in other words, the doses and the, uh, you know, the spread versus concentration of those doses really doesn't matter. Really, it really doesn't. If you wanna have your 100 grams of protein in two 50 gram meals, or, um, you know, four 25 gram meals for throughout the course of the day in a four hour window versus a 12 hour window for the goal of fat loss, those things don't seem to matter, but when they do seem to matter is when the goal, the main goal is muscle gain. What factors into how much protein a person's body can process at one sitting, or is, is there a limit to it? based on the individual there is no practical limit beyond the maximum amount of protein somebody can use in a single day so so if we if we just kind of grab the the round numbers and, and figure most adults let's say let's look at adult males somewhere between let's say um uh, 120 to like 200 grams of protein across the adult male population to, to optimize protein intake. Um, there, there is no practical limit per meal um, that your body can, in quotes, use. Now, when I say in quotes use, I'm talking about the sum total of metabolic purposes that, that the body can use protein for. Um, so when you ingest a, a, a dose of protein, let's, let's say a large dose of protein, some of it, the, the minority of it is going to go towards muscle anabolism. So the minority of it is going to go towards muscle protein synthesis. The majority of it is going to go to a combination of uptake by the, by the gut, by the, spl the splanchnik if I'm pronouncing that right, the splanchnik bed. Um, 
And also a certain amount of it is going to be oxidized as heat for energy use. A certain amount of it is going to go towards um, the structural integrity of cells. A certain amount of it is going to go towards immune function and a bunch of other physiological fates are what are what awaits this dose of protein but the the big point is only a minority of it is going to go towards muscle anabolism or muscle protein synthesis but the rest is going to get used somehow some way um it's not going to get in quotes wasted or it's not going to just leak out of your ears or elsewhere <laughs> so upwards of 90 possibly 95 percent of whatever protein dose you have, as long as it's not above and beyond the total you can use in the day is going to be digested, absorbed, assimilated, or used for energy um, for a number of of metabolic fates. And so let's make a distinction between the, um, what your body can digest versus what your body can use for muscle protein synthesis. Those are the two things that need to be separated because the limit, there there is a ceiling. Uh, There's a dosing ceiling for what your body can use for muscle protein synthesis. And that's somewhere between, oh, 0.4 to 0.6 grams per kilogram of body weight. That's kind of the upper end of what your body can use protein wise per meal for muscle protein synthesis with the rest going to all those other metabolic fates. Gotcha. And so that's kind of the complex answer to that. So back in the day, we, we assumed that this limit for muscle protein synthesis was like 20, 25, possibly 30 grams. But with the march of research and newer experiments done on higher volumes of, of exercise, of resistance training exercise, we see higher doses contributing to muscle protein synthesis to the tune of 40, possibly 50, and maybe even with some outliers, more than 50 grams of protein, um, contributing significantly to muscle protein synthesis. So, so yeah, that's the story behind um, how much protein we can use in a single in a single uh, meal. We have to make a distinguish and a distinguishing split between what's used for muscle protein synthesis versus what's just in quotes used for a, the myriad of, of bodily purposes. All right, last science-based one that I'll ask you before I ask you just a little bit about your secret to. Um, aging in reverse, which it seems like you and your wife are doing a pretty fantastic job of, which is just, it's awesome. It's awesome. It's inspiring. It's, you know, we need, we need more of you guys. Um, you know, you, you talked about the birthday party where people are like, Hey, I've cut out the rice. I've cut out the bread. I've got, you know, I've cut out all these things. And we are, if people know nothing else, they know that blood sugar goes up and insulin goes up to bring it back down. They, they, that's one thing that people <laughs> are, they're, they're pretty confident in. And they're also pretty confident because of, you know, like Mark Hyman's like, you can't have your insulin go up or we got people wearing continuous glucose monitors. And I'm like, it's a normal, as long as you don't have 
metabolic disease, as long as you're not diabetic, as long as you're not diabetes, as you said, you know, it's like these are normal functions that take place in the body to use the energy that we're providing it on a daily basis. And so this one meal is kind of irrelevant over the context as long as you keep your calories in check. Can you, I, I, I don't even know how to ask it exactly, but it's like, what do you say when people come to you and say, insulin's a big problem, right? Yeah. Insulin is mistakenly perceived and promoted in the media as some sort of a, a conductor or a driver of fat gain. And that couldn't be more incorrect. Insulin is a bystander. It's like a passenger with the driver being the overconsumption of total daily calories right. or weekly, total weekly calories, whichever way you want to look at that. And that's the thing that people need to grasp. Insulin is a process that goes on in the background. Its main purpose is to prevent or put a break, as James Krieger would say, on, on runaway gluconeogenesis at the hepatic level. Um, it's not, its job isn't to take nutrients and shove them into the fat cells. There's, there's many ways that substrates can get shuttled into fat cells, not, not just insulin. Right. And so insulin is a bystander or a passenger. It's not the driver. Number one. Number, number two, there are really simple ways that we can demonstrate the role or non-role of insulin in fat gain. What we can do is we can look at real short-term overfeeding experiments where you overfeed, let's say 50% above 50 to hundred percent above maintenance requirements. We can, we'll use carbohydrate in one group, overfeed them 50% above maintenance with carbohydrate. And the comparator group will overfeed them 50% above maintenance with fat. And then we look at who gains more fat. So the insulin model would predict the carbohydrate overfeeding group would gain more fat because they're substantially more insulinogenic than the overfeeding with fat group. Well, guess who gains more fat? It's either the fat group or they both don't have any significant differences. It's never, and I want to repeat, it's never the carbohydrate overfeeding group in controlled feeding experiments. Wow. So if the insulin model was even remotely true, we would consistently see the carbohydrate overfeeding groups gain more fat, but it just doesn't, it just doesn't happen. It never happens. And another thing we can do to test the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis uh, of fat gain is we can compare two diets, but in order to properly control the experiment, we would have to equate total caloric intake between the two diets. And the other thing we would have to equate is protein intake between the two diets. And so now we've properly controlled the variables in question, which is the proportion of carbohydrate and fat in the diet. So 
a diet that has a higher proportion of carbohydrate than fat is absolutely always going to be more insulinogenic than the diet that has a high proportion of fat and low proportion of carbohydrate. So we've controlled the variables properly. Let's run the experiment for a number of weeks or a number of months or even days just to see, you know, at the beginning of trends. Guess what happens when you equate calories and protein or when you make these isocaloric, isoproteic comparisons with highly disparate carbon fat proportions? No effing difference in... <laughs> So if the insulin model of obesity was true, we'd at least see some kind of hint or some kind of trend with the higher carbohydrate conditions being more obesogenic or being, um, or showing less fat loss. Either way, either direction. We never see it in, in controlled feeding studies. And I'm talking over the course of a dozen studies now. And so the question becomes, well, heck, if it's not carbohydrate and it's overeating, then what, what causes the overeating? What causes the overeating is a ton of non-diet and non, a ton of non-diet factors, which you and I talked about at the beginning, um, psychological factors, socioeconomic factors, environmental factors, um, and how these factors interact with, with people's genetics will determine the ease or difficulty of fat gain. Um, but okay, so what about the, the food side? What causes overeating as far as the, the, the dietary side goes, if we're not gonna talk about non-diet stuff? Well, it has to do with the food environment, yes, but it has to do with the types of food in the food environment and the availability of these foods and the passive overconsumption of, of these types of foods. And they're not just carbohydrates. They're not just carbohydrate-rich foods. They're almost always, and usually kind of an even combination of carb-fat combo foods that are highly refined, ultra-processed, yeah. highly- Almost 50-50. Almost when you go look at a package of donuts, when you look at French fries, when you look at any- they're all almost, it's a 50-50 split. It's wild. It's absolutely, dude. It's, it's almost always 50-50 split of carbs and fat. And it's a highly processed um, food-like unit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's foods that are easy to mindlessly and passively overconsume. They're highly energy dense and they have very low satiating capacity. So in other words, they have a, a, a low effect on controlling hunger levels. No protein, no fiber. Low protein, low water content, no fiber. Um, and so, you, you know, your typical junk foods, packaged junk foods, and there's, there's a time and a place for them. But the point is, we can't blame insulin driving um, the consumption of excess total calories. We can blame the consumption of excess total calories on high insulin levels, yeah, sure. But that's because insulin is a bystander and a passenger. It's, it's not the driver. Um, and there are many ways to debunk that concept. So yeah, I, I threw a, a lot of things out. That's great. That's great. Some of, some of it is, is palatable enough to remember. That's all going to stick. Cool. Like, like a pack of donuts to your 
<laughs> to your ribs. <laughs> to your rib cage. That's exactly right. Belt line. Uh, yeah. All right. Give me your give me your daily routine real quick. Uh, how are you training? How are you eating? How many days a week? What are you What are you into? So um, the first thing I have in the morning is a protein shake that consists of frozen bananas, ice, uh, chocolate protein powder, um, coffee that's obviously not hot. Uh, you know, it's either just lukewarm from sitting in the pot overnight or it was put in the fridge. And I also add um, unsweetened cocoa powder to that. Just blend it up, man. It's freaking amazing. Uh, that, that's my breakfast. And lunch really kind of varies. Um, it, it's usually a substantial hit of protein from any number of sources, um, of any, any number of, of, of animal sources. And um, it'll typically have a starch element with it. And then um, that, that's lunch. And then dinner is like the wife cooked awesome meal. <laughs> so once again, another substantial hit of protein. Usually my, my, the protein doses I have in the day are typically a minimum of uh, 40 grams each. Yeah. So when we get the wife cooked meal in play, it's, it's meat, fish, poultry, uh, with a bunch of vegetables. Um, the starch component can be anything from potatoes to, to rice to um, occasionally bread. Um, and the, the, the late night snack component of my day is, and, and this, this always kind of rotates. I, I don't have this static um, routine, but this is how it is right now. Um, about three quarters of a cup, about six ounces of um, fat-free Greek yogurt or phage or phaye, how, how yeah. people are pronouncing it, with a scoop of protein powder. I thin it out with some, with some milk. Um, and I mix a healthy rounded teaspoon of um, peanut butter in there. The I throw a couple of handfuls of uh, blueberries on top of that. And I literally just mix it in the, the, the Pyrex uh, cup. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that's how I, that's how I end off my day. And at some point in the day, whether it's after lunch or after dinner, I'll have a, a square of, of, of dark chocolate, and a handful of almonds. Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much my, my, my day nutrition wise. And I've got this, uh, it's really cool thing. My, my wife just got me this hydro flask. That's like two liters or, or so, or something. This is huge. Ass. Massive. <laughs> that thing could do damage. You better wear steel toed boots. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> a weapon. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> yeah, I, I knock out one of those at minimum through the course of the day. And I found that that's been a really great way to just kind of default towards drinking more water. Yeah. Um, training wise, I just I, I love the routine of, of going to the gym because I go to the gym with with my wife and it gives us a chance to, to talk and on, on the way there and just kind of spend some time together. Um, and I, I go there with my kids half the week too, my, my wife and my kids. 
ideally I would train five days a week. I want to train six days a week because I enjoy it, but usually end up training five days a week. And I used to train four days a week with an upper lower type split, but I further split my upper body just because there's so many exercises involved and there's so much more muscle groups to cover limbs wise and torso wise versus the legs, you know? Um, And so I, I, I've been averaging like five days a week at the gym. My cardio, I don't enjoy cardio. (laughs) Does anybody, (laughs) I don't enjoy it. Um, and so what I consciously do is I, I try to cover a, a pretty wide range of uh, loading zones. So um, low-ish reps all the way to pretty high reps. I, you know, I usually, I usually don't go lower than six reps. Yeah. I probably um, average for the heavy sets. I probably average eight to 12 reps, yeah. but I make sure I include sets in there that are in the, the high teens. And, um, I also, um, employ things like drop sets and supersets and stuff. Um, and really cardio is, is occasional walks. And the minute that I, I discover that I want to do more cardio or that I feel like I need to improve blood lipids, which I haven't thus far. Um, I, I may, I may do more formal cardio, but for now, this is what's working personally for me. Good. Well, Alan, that was fantastic, really enlightening, educational, and uh, highly entertaining. I, I had a great time. I had a great time. For bringing up the topics that are really, that really kind of light me up. I really enjoy it. Yeah, good. Well, I enjoy following you and I learn something all the time from you. So thank you. And uh, get the book, people, Flexible Dieting. And please subscribe to... It's at alanaragon.com. It's the A-A-R-R. So subscribe to that. It's 10 bucks a month. It boils all this stuff down. It's, like you said earlier, very palatable. And it takes crazy amounts of research, papers, and projects, and analysis, and all this. And it puts it into a really concise manner. So I highly recommend that for uh, more educational material for you and getting it from the best. So we're very fortunate to have you, Alan. Thank you. Yeah, we'll do. We'll do our best.
Thanks for right back, man. Keep doing a great job out there.